0: welcome back to libro mania a new podcast for the book obsessed from the close reads podcast network i'm david kern if you love books and all the things that make books great, this podcast is for you. Each week I'm presenting conversations with authors, designers, publishers, artists, biographers, critics and scholars about the things that make books worth celebrating. We'll be talking book design and bookstores, book printing and book collecting. We'll be talking about the lives and problems of famous authors and the science behind our love of books. We'll be chatting with working writers about their process and with scholars about the art of writing biography. This is chapter two, in which I cheat a little bit and talk about movies, the best movies of 2018, to be precise. Joining me is Mr. Jeffrey Overstreet, one of my very favorite film critics. Jeffrey is the author of Through a Screen Darkly, his film-going memoir, which I highly recommend, as well as novels like Aurelia's Colors and The Aleboy's Feast. And his award-winning arts writing, including reviews, columns, and essays, have been published in Image, Paste, Christianity Today, Books and Culture, and many other magazines and websites over the last 15 years. Currently, he's a creative writing professor at Seattle Pacific University, and he regularly teaches courses and seminars on film and creative writing. To find Jeffrey's reviews, including his choices for the best movies of previous years, you know, like, you know, 2017 or 2006 or 1999, then you could head over to lookingcloser.org. And again, that's lookingcloser.org. As I say in the show, in the the conversation, Jeffrey was a huge inspiration to me back when I was studying film in college. So this is a privilege. This is an honor to chat with him about the best movies of the year. I have long wanted to do this, so I was honored and excited that he said he was up for it. So let's get right to it. Here's my chat with Jeffrey Overstreet about the best movies of 2018. Well, thank you for, for joining me for this conversation. Uh, these end of the year conversations about books, movies, music, all those sorts of things are a lot of fun and certainly some fodder for plenty of debate, I'm sure. But it's a pleasure chatting with you again. I, it's, I've always wanted to talk to you about end of the year movies. And now, I, instead of doing that, you know, 140 characters at a time or just by, you know, arguing with you when you're not there, now I get to argue with you in person. Well, you know, <laughs> it, sort of in person.
1: So thanks for joining me. Well, I enjoy arguing. Um, there, was a, there was a moment at, at the end of a, uh, my senior year of high school, there was a moment at the end of a class where some of us were arguing about a text with the teacher. And, and one, of the, one of the young women in the class walked by and said, why, why can't you just enjoy these things? <laughs> and I remember my teacher turning to her with this sort of solemn look. And he said, this is how we enjoy them. <laughs> 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 and so I hope that in social media, you know, when I'm, when I'm being a film critic and, and nitpicking about things, it can sound like, uh, snobbery or being a curmudgeon or something, but really, I mean, it's done with joy and love for the forum. I mean, th- this is how I enjoy movies. So mm, uh, I think yeah. being able to hear people talk about it, I think helps because you can hear the tone of voice. So, mm,
0: Yeah, uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, tone is not something that always comes across very well on um, in a, uh, well, I was gonna say in the written word, but especially on social media.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: So. So this has been quite an interesting year in movies. I think um, there have been a number of you know really large blockbuster movies that were really well reviewed, whether that's Black Panther or even the new Mission Impossible movie Fallout. There have been a number of documentaries that have been really beloved, uh, such as the Mister Rogers uh, documentary. And then there have been you know despite whatever what what many of the critics have been saying or some of the fears of some of the critics, there have been a number of. Well, shall we say, you know, for lack of a better term, right now, it, the indie movie seems to be going strong despite the changing landscape of, of Hollywood. Yeah. But I pulled up the, just out of curiosity, not because I think it actually can tell us much of anything, uh, I pulled up the Rotten Tomatoes list of the best reviewed movies of the year. <laughs> okay. I think, I think they make a list that's like 200 movies long or something. So, All right. you know, it's a kind of an interesting, an interesting snapshot in terms of, I guess, whatever out, whatever algorithm they use, which is, a, a, which is useful to, you know, a very limited degree. Uh, but it got me thinking about, about the nature of list making and what we mean when we talk about, you know, the best movies of the year, when you, when you look at the film critic lists out there, there's kind of a split. Some people will say, you know, they're very open. These are my favorite movies of the year. These are the things that, connected to me and the same with book reviewers and music reviewers and so forth. And then some people seem to be making quite a, quite a um, stance making the argument that these are the best movies of the year. (laughs) Where do you, I think I know what you're going to, how you're going to answer this, but where do you, what's your take on, on, on your approach to list making of of this sort?
1: Well, I I have to start with Emily Dickinson saying that the truth must dazzle gradually. Um, (laughs) When, when, when critics make their year-end lists, uh, it's usually the height of Oscar season, and a lot of things uh, haven't opened yet. Um, some critics get chances to see most things uh, before yeah, they yeah. turn in their votes, but those votes are supposed to be turned in in October, and chances are that some of the best things are going to sneak in just under the wire and may may not open in most cities. Mm-hmm. And they may only, only play a couple of times in LA and New York in order to qualify for Oscars, but that doesn't mean anybody's gonna see them until February <laughs> or March. Right. And yeah. if you don't if you don't have a lively movie community or a lot of screens in your town, you may not see them until they show up on streaming. And that can be years later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm very, very skeptical about year end lists and approach them very tongue in cheek, off of my own very tongue in cheek with this sense that, you know, this is Going, probably going to be a very different list in a year and i give myself that luxury on my website i update my lists all the time uh, because i'm constantly seeing more things i just saw uh, one of my top five movies of 2017 uh, just a few weeks ago uh, the frederick Wiseman documentary about the new york public library finally mm-hmm. became available on streaming services and um you know when it when it played here in town. I think it only played it for a couple of screenings, and I was out of town, so I missed it. Mm. Um, I think that's one of the most important movies that came out last year, but hardly anybody has seen it. And mm. even though it's readily available now, because it says 2017 on it, a lot of people are gonna be like, "Oh, well, that's an old movie." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. not. A, but but more importantly, we um, you know we. our our views of art change over time. I don't really, I I compare it to to dating somebody. You know, when I see a movie for the first time, I feel like I have only just met them. Mm. Uh, When I see a movie a second time, I feel like I'm just starting to get to know them. And I have now, I'm beginning to get a sense of whether I want to pursue a relationship with this movie or not. Um, But there really is a lot going on in the viewer that determines what the experience is going to be. Because we come Mm. to art with our own, personal histories our fears our questions and our preferences. Mm -hmm. And and then there's also that struggle at a very primal level of getting past what um, what my friend John Medina would call the the animal uh, instinct questions, which are, um, can I eat this or is this going to eat me? That's sort of the most primal question that occurs to your brain when you encounter anything. Is it a danger to me or can I overpower it? Mm-hmm. Um, he says that the, the second or third question that occurs to your brain is, have I seen this before? And everything that follows from that, uh, he says, tells you how much more sophisticated than just an animal you are. If you're just an animal, you're going to care that something be familiar and that something be uh, something you can master or something that doesn't threaten or challenge you. But the more fully human we are, the more we are going to look for those challenges because we will understand that they can make us better, the more we are going to look for what is unfamiliar in order to expand our experience and become wiser and stronger and more empathetic. Mm-hmm. So what for me is a great movie is probably a movie that's going to make me profoundly uncomfortable the first time I see it because it's pushing against that reliance on nostalgia, that, that mm-hmm. wanting things that are familiar and safe Mm-hmm. And that's where the danger of sentimentality and becoming stuck in this, well, I may not know much about art, but I know what I like kind of, <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of response. Yeah. I, I think of that great Monty Python sketch where, um, you know, the, where uh, the, they're, they're discussing the painting of the Last Supper and there's this tug of war between wanting it to be full of what we like to see and wanting it to be true. Um, mm-hmm. So, so when I make these lists, uh, a lot of people will push back and say, oh, you're just trying to be a critic or you're just trying to be sophisticated or you're trying to be a snob. And I'm like, no, no. These, you know, I see 150 movies a year, and the ones that mean the most to me are the ones that surprise me and yeah. challenge me and make yeah. me want to go back and dig deeper rather than just the ones that send me out of the theater going, yes, that's what I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's why there's a profound difference between kinds of lists. Uh, a lot of a lot of them are just sort of sentimental. These are my usual preferences lists, and a lot of them are wow. I that was something I've never experienced before. I don't understand it, but I know I want to think about it more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that that's what goes through my mind when I'm when I'm making lists, and I know that I know that in a year my thoughts about a particular movie are, will have changed because I probably will have gone back to it and discussed it and written about it. A lot of times I'll come out of a movie having loved it, and then when I sit down to write about it, I realize you know, I sort of fell for the cliches in this one. Mm. And other times I'll come out going, oh my goodness, that was unpleasant. And I'll sit down Mm. and start to write about it and realize, well, it was unpleasant because it was true, because Mm. it was revelatory. Mm. Uh, And then I start to fall for it. Mm. What about you? I mean, do do you make lists at the end of the year?
0: Well, I do make lists. I make them, I have the benefit of not having to (laughs) of not really having to publish them if I don't want to, I suppose. Um, And I don't, you know, they can be very personal. I I think that sometimes saves me from perhaps uh, tending towards the, trying to impress people. (laughs) So So I can, I can focus on, on the one hand, I can focus on, you know, what movies that other people maybe don't like I can I can just sort of without having to worry about it say you know for whatever reason I did like these and then that allows me to think about what is it that I liked about it um and is it is it a flaw in me or is it actually is it okay that I like something that maybe not a lot of other people liked or that I didn't like something that everyone seems to be liking um I suppose if I was writing more about it as well, if I was spending more time actually having to write reviews of some of those movies that I either liked or didn't like that a lot of that would come out before the list making process for me. Um, So I I have, that's probably something of a benefit, but I do make lists. I, I usually, what I tend to do, I've, I've found that I'm not seeing enough movies the year that they come out. You know, a lot of the things that came out this year that, I'll end up loving. I probably won't get to see until the new year because of the limitations of where I live and, um, and then just having little kids and it's hard for me to, you know, hard for me to get out sometimes, um, enough times in a year to really make a comprehensive list, but then I'll go back later. I'll keep the list for, for 2018. And then I'll go back as I see them sort of like what you were saying, and I'll cross things out and try to find ways to assess them after seeing things multiple times, um, but I—I I mean, I love making lists. I keep a pretty detailed list of the books that I'm reading and the movies and TV that I'm watching throughout the year, and then like to look back at, you know, years later and see what I was reading or enjoying at a specific time. And I find often that because of the limitations that I'm working with, I—I I find that I end up focusing a lot on. You know the sort of essential and classic movies that I've missed, yeah. or or that I know that I need to rewatch again. So this year, for whatever reason, I found myself rewatching a lot of the, a classic American cinema of the nineteen seventies, some you know, um, the French Connection, and some of those those sorts of movies that either I watched a long time ago when I was in college, or you know, studying film in school, or that I just missed altogether and felt like you know if I'm gonna have educated conversations, or even just feel like i know what i'm talking about or enjoying things within the right context that i need to make sure that i see these things so that is you know the limitations have forced me to some degree to spend more time on filmstruck this year although now i can't do that anymore but
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you'll be able to again soon it sounds like they've got a good replacement service coming up um yeah and there are so many streaming options now i'm a big fan of canopy because they too are offering a lot of really wonderful challenging uh films that platform is built primarily for educators. And Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not as flashy and as user-friendly as Netflix, um, but it's uh, there's, there's just a treasure trove there uh, for people to find. Yeah. In some ways,
0: you know, like we'll talk about Roma in a little bit, but that's a movie that there's been a Pretty a decent bit of discussion online about what's the best way to see it. And I think that the you know the consensus take is that you see this in a the theater if you can. And of course, that's how Alfonso right. Cuarón wanted us to watch it. But then there also is, you know the streaming offers us a, a access to the canon of movies, the great movies that that ten years ago when I was in college, for example, it was very difficult to find a lot of these movies. And I remember I remember, for example, looking at a lot of the lists that you were making back then and, you know, that you'd made. Oh, I don't know. Going back <laughs> into the nineties, right? So I'm looking yeah, at a, in the late
2: nineties uh, that I have recently reorganized. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I remember, I remember, Where so I? I graduated, I was in college in the mid 2000s. So I remember looking at those <laughs> and looking at a lot of these lists that you were making and there was a lot of foreign films on there and and I'd have to really hunt down trying to find some of those and yours, your list and a couple other people's lists were lists that I was using to kind of curate the the movies that I was watching and that I wasn't getting in college in my wow, classes. Yeah. And so... It, it's a much easier to find some of those things because of these streaming services than it was then. So I'm very grateful for that, but I'm also trying to balance that with, you know, there's a, there is a, these, these movies were crafted to be seen in a very specific way. So yeah. I have to temper or adjust the way that I think about them because I'm either watching them, you know, on a, on a TV or even, you know, God forbid on my computer or iPad when I'm, you know, I've got a sleeping kid in the room and I'm just sort of waiting for them to not stir. <laughs> Um, so I'd have to I'm trying to adjust the way I think about them and the way I, the way I judge them and and assess them based on that.
2: Yeah. And a lot of that comes through discussion. I mean, I, Mm -hmm. I lived in just the right place at just the right time back then because I lived in Seattle, which was a much better movie going town then than it is now. There were a lot more options, Mm -hmm. a lot more theaters, uh, and I worked at a video store, so I, (laughs) I had access Mm -hmm. to things that I, what's a video store. Uh, yeah, exactly. What was that? <laughs> Although we do have a family
0: video, I don't know if you guys know if you know what that is. It's a family video around the corner from us that does free kids movies for with wow. rentals. So well, we have managed to see more kids movies than I would have ever expected. As long as I th- and then you know I find a lot of older movies that are on DVD or Blu-ray that I can rent for a buck and then get a free kids movie. So that has definitely opened up some things that even you know kids movies that even I you know never saw. That came out between the ages of when, you know, when I was 15 and 25 before I had kids. So that's been fun to, to, to go back and watch kids movies that, well, quote, kids movies that I never saw that I love just as much as my kids do, if not more.
2: Yeah. And I've got a few, I've got a few kids movies on my list this year. So that's good. Yeah. There's
0: a couple that are getting quite a bit of positive. uh, Well, all year long, there's been several that have been getting a lot of positive, positive reviews, but let's, let's look at your list. Let's look at your top 10, but you, you mentioned that there are some honorable mentions that oh, <laughs> you'd like to that are worth talking about. They're getting you know the kind that are getting good good reviews and there's been a lot of buzz about them. Uh, so where would where, you like to start with which one?
2: Yeah, I'd say if I mean I've I've got a list of about thirty five movies <laughs> so far this year that I really enjoyed, but um, the uh, those that have just sort of missed the top ten and that I might still put there in time uh, as I continue to talk to people and and revisit these films. Um, but a, f- a few that that I wished I could cram into the top ten. Uh, include some of the ones that people are talking about most right now. You mentioned Mission Impossible Fallout, which was a blast. Uh, a little movie called Puzzle that I wish more people had seen. It stars Kelly MacDonald, who most people know as the voice of Merida in Brave. Mm. Uh, I know her more as the main character in the movie Gosford Park, which is the movie that oh, inspired right that inspired Downton Abbey. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's an extraordinary actress and this is the best role she's ever had. Puzzle is actually about a uh, sort of a housebound housewife who discovers of all things, competitive jigsaw puzzling and, that sounds immediately like a movie that's going to fall right into a formula about somebody who's going to find a life outside of her oppressive traditional family and find her way to fame and glory. And that's not what happens at all. It's a very complicated human story with a very sympathetic husband and, and kids and family. Hmm. Uh, And, and yet a really sincere story about uh, finding the courage to, to be yourself in that context um, rather than just, Live up to other people's expectations. So, Puzzle is a movie I really recommend that you you track down um, for one of those quieter, more intimate movie-going experiences. I loved it. Um, mm-hmm. Roma, which is pr- maybe the most talked-about movie this week, the new mm-hmm. film from a- Alfonso Cuarón, who made Gravity and Children of Men, mm-hmm. uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which I think is the best Harry Potter movie, and one of the. Oh, most well-crafted fantasy films ever made um, first reformed the new film from Paul Schrader, mm-hmm. which revisits a lot of the themes of his uh, of taxi driver, which he wrote in the seventies and updates it to be about a profoundly conflicted pastor who is torn between the people pleasing of a mega church and the gospel serving of his calling uh, in the middle of a big debate over global warming and and pollution and environmentalism. And he, he sort of takes up the cause of serving God by uh, devoting himself to creation care. And that leads him right off a cliff into cynicism mm-hmm. about the church, about the state of uh, the, the, the profoundly uh, conflicted state of politics within the church. And really, it comes down to what does the gospel really ask of us? And how easily can, can we go wrong um, when, we, when we start to despair? That movie has generated a lot of uh, discussion this year. Um, and a, a little movie called Prospect, which is a, a science fiction film by some new filmmakers named Z-Girl and, and Chris Caldwell. Uh, who I, I have a personal connection to. They graduated from Seattle Pacific while I was working here. And so I've seen them go from aspiring undergraduate filmmakers with big ideas to actually making a big screen science fiction film hmm. that's, that's really quite impressive and getting very good reviews. So I know i am it's not just that I'm biased. <laughs> um, I also really love... Yeah, yeah. I really love handmade filmmaking. And Prospect hmm. is unique in that it, it relies only where it absolutely has to on digital animation and almost everything in the movie was handcrafted to create this sense of another world. Um, and I've seen it twice and I, I just really love it. Um, but anyway, back to Roma, the most discussed yeah, film yeah. this week. Quaron um, is nothing if not ambitious. And in this film, he's looking back at the style of great masters uh, like Fellini and Bresson and it's a, it's a panoramic widescreen black and white experience. Um, But it's also a a portrait of, of true love really for the character of this nanny who um, clearly represents women he knew growing up and experiences he had as a child where uh, the nanny really became the mother in the family. And she's so neglected and persecuted And yet she's made a saint in this movie. And that is all very impressive. Um, The reason it's not in my top 10, and I know I'm going to be really in the minority there as film critics go, (laughs) is that so much of the discussion about the film is just how awestruck everyone is by the scope and the scale of these scenes which are filmed often where you can see like miles into the distance and there are you know hundreds and hundreds of actors on the screen at the same time for scenes of riots in the streets or scenes of a, a martial arts training ground or scenes where the camera just goes and goes through the city and you cannot imagine how they staged such massive sequences. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it's not in my top 10 is just that I spent so much time detached from the movie thinking about it from a technical standpoint that i realized afterwards that something really didn't work for me it's supposed to be an intimate portrait celebrating the excuse me the the big heart in this small woman (laughs) and how she was sort of a an overlooked saint in the middle of all this and i came away from the movie not feeling like i had shared much experience with her at all i had spent so much time being impressed with Mm -hmm. The technical achievement of the movie—that I didn't feel close to the character the way the the filmmaker wanted me to—and so that's why I'm in a very different place than a lot of other critics who can't stop talking about this achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the second time will be the charm for me. Maybe I'll see it again, and I'll, and and because now I I've I've been overwhelmed the way he wanted me to be overwhelmed. Um, maybe now I'll finally actually be able to pay attention to the character, but I found it both impressive and distancing Hmm. in a similar way. First reformed as a movie was so busy referencing other movies, other great art films Hmm. in almost every case, better art films that I spent most of my experience watching first reformed thinking about other movies instead (laughs) of thinking about the central character. Uh, So that it may, it may be, a problem with me in that I've I've seen too many movies and I've I've read too much about movies and so I have a harder time with suspension of disbelief. I think they're both important films, Uh, but I've got to be honest as a critic about what really moved me and the two questions that I ask coming out of a movie are A, did I believe it while I was watching it? And B, what does this movie love most? And in the case of Roma, it felt to me like the movie professed love for its character, but really what it loved was pulling off amazing spectacles. And in the case of First Reformed, it seemed like it wanted me to love theological questions, but I came away feeling like the movie loved even more showing off its connection to other famous films. Hmm. And that's where I'm conflicted on both of those
0: in a strange reversal at least regarding roma do you think that it's possible that watching it uh, you know on netflix or something like that where the grand the grandeur of the achievement the technical achievement is perhaps less pronounced and less profound would actually maybe enhance the the degree to which the the female character this this saintly character is is
2: put put forth do you, is that possible or am i I suppose that's possible, uh, but I think it's unlikely because you're still seeing that entire image and she will just get smaller sure. and smaller. Sure. Uh, sure. And in a lot of ways, you won't be able to appreciate uh, the exquisite detail of those massive shots where mm-hmm. you, you know, you're, you're looking across an open valley where there are hundreds of martial arts uh, uh, students training. Uh, and you can see each one of them distinctly on a on a smaller screen. You're going to lose a lot of that, and it's just going to be a really crowded, complicated image. Um, maybe I mean, maybe I'll watch it and I'll feel more connected to the character. But it's not like if you watch it on TV, things are suddenly going <laughs> to shift into close-up. Sure, um, sure, that, that doesn't happen at all. There is a sequence at the end on the beach, and I'm not going to spoil anything about it. Just say it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I, I really don't know how they did it. Hmm. Um, at the same time, there again. I'm focusing on how they did it, not what happened.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So
0: like the famous shot in, um, what's the, uh, atonement, the famous, the famous long take in atonement where everyone's sort of like, well, that was quite the achievement, but it didn't really hold the emotional weight
2: that they probably wanted it to, you know, come to think about that was pretty much my review of that film was I spent the whole time thinking about how they made the movie instead of what it was about. Mm.
0: Do you find that that's true from. Like when you look at Gravity, do you do you have a sort of similar take on it? Did you have the same feeling that it was sort of masterfully created, but maybe soulless?
2: Um, I would say too harsh. Yeah, soulless. I would say is too harsh because I do think there's, I do think he really cares about the the central character's experience in that film, and in fact, Roma makes a direct reference to. An experience that must have been a strong, influential, personal experience for Quaron, uh, but it's almost like for about five minutes of the movie, he hits pause on Roma and says, and by the way, <laughs> let, me, let, let me show you where I got the idea for Gravity. Uh, because once again, it's a movie about a woman who's sort of lost in space, so to speak. She's trying to navigate in these extremely harsh conditions, where one wrong move can ruin her entire life. Hmm. Um, and she's trying to maintain a connection with a sense of home that is very far away. So it's not real obvious, but 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 you can make a strong correlation between the two movies. But there is one moment where it's very clear that we're 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 getting a sense of the moment in. Very, very young Quaron's life that planted the seed in him to make a movie about literally being lost in space. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, back to your question, um, I, I really connected powerfully with the Quaron movies that came before Gravity. Mm. Gravity was the one where I felt like uh, technique and spectacle were beginning to overpower personal connection i have a stronger connection to the movie children of men stronger connection to prisoner of azkaban frankly and going back even earlier um a very strong connection to a, a children's movie called a little princess
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: which is a beautiful adaptation of a classic story um that, that achieves real intimacy
1: with its characters
0: interesting that you mentioned that because those three movies that you just mentioned none of them are original Quran own stories. True. They're all adaptations. That's right. I wonder if, I wonder sure. if that connection is because the key didn't, it, it's not all up to him to, to, to create that connection. I mean, Children of Men is obviously, and that's a pretty incredible novel uh, yeah. by a very, I, I, by a masterful storyteller
2: yeah but the movie has little or nothing to do with it um well,
1: well true. <laughs> when I interviewed him,
2: when I interviewed him about that film he he admitted that he had only read the text on the back of the book, like the synopsis <laughs> and said oh that that gives me an idea for a movie and he took it from there so all of the all of the arguments about how faithful the movie is to the book are, are kind of uh beside the point because he didn't even try uh, yeah he, he took the central idea and made his own thing out of it
0: yeah, it's interesting how even the even the sort of even the seed of a story though seems to have given him like a sort of a something to work towards or, or some sort yes. of something to build his formal his technical skills around or
2: towards you know yeah i totally agree yeah
0: um yeah. well okay so you mentioned uh, first reformed i do have one question about that um do you do you are you with sort of the well, I guess it's not a consensus because he didn't get nominated for a Golden Globe. I don't believe, but do you, are you with
2: the? Are you in agreement that Ethan Hawke's performance is as good as everyone says? Oh, it's yeah, he's great. He's great, and I won't begrudge him winning a Best Actor Oscar, which he, he may well. Um, and he, he's also sort of got that he's got it coming kind of vibe. Um, he's yeah, starred yeah. in so many great things over the years. Frankly, I wish he had won for. One of the three Richard Linklater films before yeah. Sunrise, Before Sunset,
1: Before Midnight.
2: Um, yeah, I think he I deserved it I for Midnight. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's his best performance, but I think it's a strong one in a year that, that lacked strong lead male performances, at least in the movies that people saw. Hmm. So,
0: yeah, it seems like some of the best, maybe we can talk about this at the end, but some of the best male performances this year were in pretty quiet movies and by, and oftentimes by actors who we've never heard of before. Um, definitely,
2: you know, whether Um, that's, was it Ryder or is that what it's uh, called? Yeah. That's what I was going to say. The writer, Brady Jandro basically playing himself. Uh, but that's a very powerful, memorable performance. Um, um, there, there's a really strong performance by John C. Riley in a, in a, in a Western that hardly anybody saw called the sisters brothers. That's one I did see. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a very strange, film i liked that a lot partly because i can't wait to see it again to try to figure out what it's really about yeah yeah uh, Joaquin, um, uh, that also yeah, has walking phoenix. phoenix in it yeah, yeah who's who's who shows up in my list in a different film but we'll get to that
0: okay well let's dive in a little deeper than that's a it's a good segue so number 10 what's your number 10 movie on your your favorite movies of the year? <laughs>
2: uh 10 right now is a movie called private life which anybody who has netflix can watch right now it's a Catherine netflix movie.
0: movie right well tamar jenkins is that
2: yeah, yeah, Catherine Hahn who's also in my favorite movie of the year but we'll get to that. Okay. Um, yeah, Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti uh play a married couple who started their marriage as as aspiring artists who were developing some sense of success and acclaim. And now uh, as they're getting older, they have decided a little bit late that they they want to become parents. And so they are going through the madness of, uh, and I say the madness because that's, that's the perspective of the film, the madness of fertility treatments uh, in every way, shape, or form. They are, they're pursuing adoption and pursuing having a baby on their own. And the movie seems to come from, I don't know if it's the filmmaker's personal experience, but seems very based in true life experiences as they learn the ins and outs of these different kinds of treatments. And uh, find start running into things like fraud. Um, start learning just how many things can can go wrong in that journey. And so as they are trying to sort of fill this this void in their life, um, they come up against different prejudices within uh, within her family, um, and they uh, start trying to help uh, their. Um, the, the woman Catherine Hahn plays it, uh, the, Rachel, they try to help her niece who is in college and who is really kind of lost trying to find who she is in the world. And uh, as they become sort of a helpful uncle and aunt to her, uh, they don't seem to realize the very parental role they are playing in her life. But the movie leaves it for us to see how they are really becoming a family even as they ask her to help them in their search for a child and she, uh, being a very empathetic soul wants to help them. Uh, it's very funny, uh, but funny in that laugh of recognition kind of way. Mm -hmm. It's, it's painful truth. And, um, I have never liked Paul Giamatti more in a movie, and I'm a Mm -hmm. big fan of Paul Giamatti. Mm -hmm. Um, He is such a fully developed human character here. Catherine Hahn, who's better known for comedies like Bridesmaids, is spectacular here. Um, Mm -hmm. I think she's got a very promising future as a dramatic actress. Um, Mm -hmm. Above all, I'm just happy to see Tamara Jenkins back as a filmmaker. Uh, She made a movie called The Savages. Yeah. Uh, gosh, like a decade ago with Laura Linney and Philip Seymour Hoffman that was absolutely fantastic. Um, so welcome return for Tamara Jenkins. And I, I highly recommend this to you, but I might not recommend it as a date
1: movie
2: <laughs> <laughs> because it, it is a very honest, raw, difficult movie about the challenges of marriage and um, that the, the risks you take for your heart and your, your mental health uh, if you Uh, set out on this kind of quest at this point in your life.
0: Hmm. I suppose I should mention as a disclaimer here that many people who are listening will be thinking about watching movies with their kids and families. So just do a little research as I'm sure you're going to and be uh, discerning, be discerning as you, you know, use, use your own discernment based on your kids because we're not going to be able to tell you whether or not every one of these movies is great for your
2: family. So this is um, not a family movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's a movie that cares very deeply about families but, but maybe it's not a family movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not one to watch with uh, the kids. Uh, so number 10 is a uh, private life. Tamara Jenkins movie. So number nine.
2: Uh, number
1: nine.
2: <laughs> uh, number nine right now on my list is a movie called leave no trace. Um, oh, yeah. I'm just now, just now realizing that's also from um, uh, a female director who we haven't heard from in a long time. Deborah Granick. Uh, She made the movie Winter's Bone, which was the movie that Mm. sort of introduced Jennifer Lawrence to the world as an actress and launched her career in a very big way. And frankly, I don't know that I've liked a performance from Jennifer Lawrence more than the one uh, that she gave in Winter's Bone. Winter's Bone, of course, was a very raw, um, terrifying movie about a young woman in an impossible situation in a very rural area where the community can become as much a danger to you as a support Uh, That is also true in this movie, which is called Leave No Trace. It stars Thomason McKenzie, who I think has as promising a future as Jennifer Lawrence, perhaps. She plays the daughter uh, of a war veteran who, because of PTSD, is now living in the forest, uh, the big forest park just outside of Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. So a lot of this area looks very familiar to me. Hmm. He wants to live off the grid. He's very paranoid. He's very uh, suspicious of the government. But he's also very legitimately uh, upset about the effects of consumerism on uh, individuality and on freedom. And so he wants his daughter to grow up free from all of that influence and meddling. And he wants an authentic life. So he's trying to teach her survival. He's trying to teach her an appreciation for the natural world and for beauty. Um, and there is an intimacy between the two of them that we rarely ever see between a father and a daughter in a film. Hmm. Both characters are so fully developed. Uh, Ben Foster plays the father and he usually plays really scary, nasty, dangerous guys, but here (laughs) he's, he's he's capable of that, but he's also just a very broken soul that you can deeply care for. This Hmm. movie follows them, uh, in a trajectory where we know they cannot sustain this because they're being hunted. They are desperately in need of mental health support for him. Uh, She is in need of good schooling and good care. So she's going to be able to survive in in the real world. And so it's really about navigating that tension between the ways in which society wants to shape you and um, your, your need for community, your need to participate in society. It's sort of like that great Thomas Merton life lesson about the importance of solitude in order to hear yourself think, Hmm. but then even more, the challenge to go and participate in society and be Christ to the world, carrying that sense of solitude and self-knowledge with you into the world it's a really mm. beautiful film and mm. i i highly recommend it for the performances uh and for deborah granick just as a director i, I hope we don't have to wait 10 more years for another one from her
0: mm. i have i have heard some r- some great things about thomas and Mackenzie, and she's australian isn't she I
2: yes think she, and gosh. she's um uh, she's already involved in, in other projects, and I'm really eager to see how that works out for her to see if she has the kind of range that Jennifer Lawrence has proven to have. Mm. Uh, I, I, I'm actually a big fan of Jennifer Lawrence, um, but the more that celebrity has become a part of her career, uh, the harder it has become to believe her in a movie because yeah. we sit there thinking about the celebrity. It's like the, It's like uh, Michael Caine said to me in an interview a long time ago. He said, if you're sitting there thinking that's a great performance by Michael Caine, then I have failed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He says, you should be caught up in the character, not thinking about me.
0: Mm. Um, And what a challenge though, for, for someone who gets as famous as say a Tom Cruise or even a Tom
2: Hanks or someone like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Then the the movies become about them and their career and how this character is a challenge for them. And it's very rare that we forget who we're watching and we're completely mm -hmm. caught up in the, in the suspension of disbelief.
0: There's been a lot of talk about the way, I mean, I haven't seen this movie yet. there's been a lot of talk about the way that Christian Bale becomes um, the vice president in Vice. Yes. Well, not the current vice president, <laughs> you know but uh, but did you have you seen
2: Vice? Not yet, Uh, not yet. But I think it's probably a wise marketing endeavor to focus on that transformation because the early reviews of the film are pretty terrible. And uh, if if anybody's going to end up seeing it, it's going to be because they want to see Christian Bale turn into Dick Cheney. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: It's it's. But it's interesting, man. That's got to be you know. For he's he's the kind of character or he's the kind of actor who tends to, you know. really do a transformation like that. You know, he's going to gain the weight or lose the weight or put on the, the, the strange voice or whatever. And man, that's Daniel day Lewis did the same thing, but it seems like that is, there's a fine line there between a really profound performance and just sort of almost becoming
2: a caricature of your own career, I guess yeah some people call it stunt acting it's like look what i can do now (laughs) yeah that's johnny depp right yes
0: does seem to be at least the way he's gone uh
2: that's yeah in recent recent years yeah yeah yeah, definitely
0: okay uh, number eight so 10 is private life nine is leave no trace and uh
2: i have to to do some uh, uh some disclaimers here on eight, seven and six, because uh, <laughs> technically they did play at least on one screen somewhere in the world in 2017, but they didn't become accessible. And some of them actually are still difficult to find. Uh, okay. Number eight is a, is a film called November. Uh, and November is uh, set in a medieval Estonian town town, uh, full of very very poor messy crude peasants who are caught up in the occult um this is a story that's really a folk tale um it's like a fairy tale come to life on the screen but Mm. it's like a fairy tale if it was made by the great russian filmmaker andrei tarkovsky Mm. everything is rain drenched and muddy that's quite the comp yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's an extravagant black and white photography experience first and mm-hmm. foremost. Uh, the reason I love it is because it brings fairy tale imagery to life and black and white photography in ways that just left my jaw on the floor. Mm-hmm. And while that may sound like the very thing I was criticizing Roma for, uh, in this case, I was completely enchanted. The, the story is very simple in a way, uh, at times almost too simple. I, I actually felt a little bit dissatisfied at the end because I wanted the story to end up being a little more complicated. But I think the filmmakers are very dedicated to a certain kind of ancient storytelling. And so you have a young peasant boy who is obsessed with and sort of lusting over uh, this, this rich, uh, very stuck up, very pretentious woman who's probably going to use and abuse him. Uh, But he, the boy is loved by another peasant girl who becomes sick with jealousy And who ends up conspiring with a witch to try and spoil this boy's quest uh, to win the heart of the rich girl. And so, as you can imagine, things get very dark and strange. Um, But the film does acknowledge the presence of a very uh, crude understanding of Christianity in the community. And so it shows how Christianity can be corrupted and become just another vocabulary for personal advancement if you're not careful uh and it really is a a wages of sin kind of story because while while the sin on display is very dark um and and troubling the movie does not glorify it at all Um, so again not a movie for the family not a movie for small children but if you're interested in the darker origins of fairy tales and the profound lessons in good and evil that they can offer this is a really incredible work of imagination it's called november uh you can rent it on streaming platforms like voodoo.com. <laughs> ironically although it's vudu not voodoo v o o d o o but voodoo.com. that's where i saw it and as a big fan of fantasy and fairy tales uh, i thought it was the best uh visual experience at the movies i had this year um, what would you compare it to
0: like is there a is there some movie f- wow. throughout throughout you know the history of well i don't know the, the history of, kind of <laughs> big question but that maybe that's something something that people have seen before or maybe
2: some kind of maybe a couple of movies that it that it pays homage to in any ways if you've seen john cocteau's classic beauty and the beast i mean okay. the,
1: the
2: the old black and white beauty in the yeah, Beast, which yeah, yeah. has, has images achieved with practical effects and, and, black and white photography that are just magical. Um, I suppose I could compare it to something like that, but that's a much more childlike, uh, you know, that, that, that's a, that's a movie that I would, I would show to children. Right. Um, right. Th- this is a much grittier kind of thing. Like I said, it has that Tarkovsky, um, dirtiness to it, where it, mm-hmm. it feels like you have discovered, uh, uh uh, a, a sort of cult in the woods. Um, mm. I guess as far as the spirit of the thing, it reminds me most of a horror movie that came out a year ago called The Witch. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not quite as graphic as that film, but but close. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there are monsters in this movie that, the, that uh, the forces of evil bring to life. And they are built out of the stuff that the people have around the farm. So there's almost a, a Tim Burton kind of element to it where this this monster is running around the countryside and he's made out of, I, I wanna say like a scythe and a, um, an ax and a wagon wheel and hmm. the skull of a cow or a horse or something. Uh, so there are these very strange animated characters uh, sort of uh, somersaulting around the landscape in the background. And uh, that adds a very surreal aspect to it.
0: Hmm. Is this a? Wh- where was it made? Is, is
2: this is this a? I'm looking. Up, I'm looking it up right now. Well, it takes place in a medieval Estonian village. I am um, not familiar with the director. I need to do more um, reading about him. But but his name is is Rainier Sar- Sarnet or Sarnay. Um, Estonia.
0: He's,
2: yes, he's Estonian. Okay. So yeah, not like anything you will have you will have seen before. Um, You're not going to see it at your multiplex. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. No, I think I think it did play one screen in Seattle for a short time, but I caught up with it on a streaming platform.
0: All right, uh, so Private Life, number 10. Number 9, Leave No Trace. Number 8, November. So we're at number 7 now.
2: Moving right along, 24 Frames is a movie that I'm probably not going to recommend to your listeners because it will probably put most people to sleep. But it's important <laughs> to me because it's the last movie by the great Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kirostami. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a unique movie going experience. It's, it's 24 still photographs that he took and wanted to share that were deeply personal to him. And they're usually photographs of landscapes. And you may wonder, okay, I'm going to a movie theater. I'm gonna look at 24 still photographs. How is that even a movie? He gave these photographs of often snowy landscapes with crows and ravens hopping around in the trees and, and herds of cattle or horses or wild animals. And he gave those photographs to special effects artists. So as you sit and look at this still photograph on the big screen, it slowly comes to life in very subtle ways. So you're looking, it's almost like looking at the most beautiful collection of animated GIFs that have been made. (laughs) Mm. And the more you watch, the more you realize there actually are thematic connections between the images. And he is talking to you about the world. He is talking to you about human nature. He is talking to you about the threats to the planet. He's talking about deeply spiritual things, but he relies on us to think about what we're watching and consider the questions that they raise, uh, consider matters of predators and prey and the fragility of the environment and the purpose of the seasons. Um, It was an extraordinary experience. I'll never forget it. There were only about 10 of us in the theater, and I think two or three of them left by about the third photograph. But I found it kind of hypnotic and mesmerizing, and it's sort of a reminder, uh, a useful reminder, I think, that that motion pictures, we we tend to talk about the story primarily, but you Mm -hmm. can take the story away and still have a movie. You can't take away imagery and still have a movie. And it reminds you that the elemental thing about cinema is powerful, carefully composed images that speak. Uh, in ways that we are, like we are right now, struggling to paraphrase. That's what makes it a a high art, Hmm. uh, and a very different one than just storytelling. So 24 Frames was the most unique thing I saw this year, and uh, I've just learned that the the Criterion Collection is going to be releasing it soon. So that means it found enough critical consensus that this was uh, an important achievement in cinema, um, and one that if you're up for a challenge... um, watch it on the biggest screen you can find with the best sound system you can find. So you can lose yourself in these, in these environments. Hmm. So, and that one is available. That one is not available currently. It will be out uh, as a criterion release soon, but I saw it during a limited engagement uh, screening here in Seattle and and it did very well at film festivals. If you, if you do a, google search for 24 frames you're going to find all kinds of, of rave reviews about it um, my friend melissa Taminga, who lives up in in bellingham washington and who is a film critic for the seattle scene and also a frequent guest on uh, the podcast film spotting
1: mm-hmm.
2: she she picked 24 frames as, as her number one movie of the year she was oh, she wow. was overwhelmed by it
1: so
0: mm-hmm. the trailer prob- what would you say the trailer gives a taste of
2: Yes. Uh, an actual absolutely. Season. That'll tell you whether this is something you want to pursue or not.
0: <laughs> some trailers, you know, maybe not. This one sounds like it will.
2: Yeah. I don't recommend it because I have any confidence it's going to be a crowd pleaser. I recommend it <laughs> uh, in the hopes that maybe one listener will find it and think, wow, this this enhances my understanding of what movies can do. Mm-hmm. And maybe it'll inspire some visual artists to realize that cinema... They don't have to have a story to make a movie. The mm-hmm. movies can do can work on us in very different ways.
0: Mm. Um, and in some cases, sometimes there's too much story anyway, right? So,
2: so uh, yes. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: <laughs> I was reading. I was uh, following some threads on on Twitter recently. Uh, film critics discussing uh, the way that so many movies are so long. But that, yeah. and so when you run across one, you know, that's a really confident hour and a half, you know, that's just, there's a, there's an efficiency to it and, yeah. and a precision to it that that's a really welcome thing in a world where so many movies and even TV shows are, seem so bloated. And, and so they feel like they have to pack so much story when sometimes, you know, a single image could do just as well as 25 minutes of exposition.
2: You're going to hear a lot about a movie called Widows that, that people are putting on their top 10 lists. And I, yeah. I didn't put that anywhere near my top 10 list because I felt like it so clearly needed to be a miniseries. It, it wanted to be a, like The Wire. It wanted to be yeah, a, social, yeah. a social studies experience. And it, the fact is it's based on a miniseries, on a, on a British television series. And uh, I think that's the real weakness in that movie is it doesn't go deep on anything because it's trying to include everything.
0: Mm. There's that shot in that movie, you know, the one that everyone's talking about the long take where he's the camera's kind of on the hood of the car and they're driving from yes. the, right. the sort of slum part of Chicago. And then it takes three and a half minutes or whatever it is to get to the rich part. And that was one of those scenes that it, you know, you can see what they're going for. And as I was watching it, it was, you know, there's, there's something of an achievement there and you, it just all felt sort of, on the nose as some people say and that that's one of those movies that i feel like has moments
2: but the moments yes. don't add up to what it seems to think of that that they add up to exactly yeah steve mcqueen the director um is is very very good at uh, visual composition and creating a, a sort of a mood mm-hmm. uh with, yeah. with the lighting um and that that particular scene was one of the most interesting things in the movie to me, but that's because it gave me something great to look at because the story really wasn't involving me very much. <laughs> mm.
0: Yeah. I thought there were, you know, like Brian Tyree Henry, I thought had a, the scene where he's in the apartment. I thought that was interesting the way he's sort of becoming a, a an actor to look out for. And of course I haven't seen um, if Beale Street could talk yet, but you know, there's certain moments or certain interactions that, that are enjoyable in the moment. And then
2: you kind of look back at them and feels like, well, what did it all mean right Um, i'm glad you brought up if beale street could talk because that's one of the ones that i i can't wait to see and i and i haven't seen yet either i'm still playing catch up on some of these um but he does figure in another of my top 10 here so we'll get to that well okay let's get that number six number six uh again one that i'm not going to highly recommend to everybody because this is a very dark disturbing and violent film it's called you were never really here Hmm. and that also is by a great female director. This is a great year for women who make movies. Uh, Lynn Ramsey, who has made some of the most critically acclaimed movies of the last 30 years. Uh, This is a movie with Joaquin Phoenix, uh, and it also has taxi driver connections the way First Reform does. It's about a man who is so um, damaged by uh, past experiences with violence that he is trying to channel his Uh, mental illness, in a way, into some form of productive vigilante justice. So he hunts down criminals who kidnap children and who are involved in human trafficking. So it's about this traumatized war veteran um, trying to find a missing girl. And the more he looks for her, the more he uncovers this web of political corruption. And it takes him eventually right into the heart of a human trafficking effort that is very, very hard to see and to think about, and the movie does not flinch at showing some of the uh, horrific um, abuse going on there. But what the movie I think is really about is our addiction to the idea of a vengeful male champion going in to rescue vulnerable women or girls and becoming a hero that way. In this movie it can look very much like a formula on the surface. Here's a guy who's who's angry, you know, like Liam Neeson in so many movies in the last several years. <laughs> um, and he's going to go find the girl they took and he's going to make them pay. And this movie forces you to deal with the implications of that. And also questions this whole assumption that this is a man's job. Um, I, I don't want to spoil any of the storytelling turns, but by the end, if, if you... As a, as a, if, if men who watch this movie find any kind of satisfaction or sense of um, identity in this role of being the hero who goes and, and rescues, uh, you know, princesses who are locked in towers, uh, uh, this movie really confronts that and will leave them asking why that is what gives them a sense of identity. Uh, because our hero, quote unquote hero, ends up profoundly disillusioned with uh, this path he has chosen for himself by the end. And it leaves us asking if, no, maybe sometimes the the quote unquote princesses are fully aware of what they're caught up in and are capable of, uh, responding to that situation themselves. Hmm. If, if the world empowers them with the possibility that they can. Hmm. Um, so again, a very dark, sort of nightmarish film, but one that exposes uh, questions and challenges us with questions that I think are really important and that can ultimately signal a major transition in American storytelling away from this glorification of vigilante justice uh, hmm. to pa- like make us go patriot style sense of justice. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, a, a, a turn away from the Mel Gibson era, so to speak. <laughs>
0: uh, I'm, I'm really glad you've mentioned that so many... What was that? Three of the five movies you mentioned so far were by female directors? Because yeah. if, you, if you look around, if you just look at the, the big movies right now, so to speak, even the ones that got nominated or even the directors who got nominated for Golden Globes and who are in the running for the Academy Award, there is certainly a lack of uh of women in those lists but there are some really incredible female directors working right now and i i I hope people you know you said you couldn't recommend all of these movies and i get why but i also hope people go see these movies or find a way to watch them because so many of these 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 directors deserve you know the platform that that some of these other well they probably deserve it more than a lot of these, you know, a lot of the men who are just continuing to to put out mediocre movies one after the other. If we gave some yeah. of that money to these women who are making incredible movies, think about how much better the the world of
2: movies would be. Well, and a shout out to to Chloe Zhao who made The Rider, which is is not in my top ten, but which is one of my favorite films of the year. Um, she uh, made a a movie that's all, almost a documentary because it's about um, this guy who suffered a traumatic head injury, uh, as a rodeo writer. Um, and she, she met this guy and wanted to tell his story, but told it as sort of, as a sort of fictionalized it. Um, so that we're left to wonder how much of it is really Brady Jandro's true story and how much of it was crafted, uh, for the sake of a movie experience, but she's so intimate with her, her characters and with that community. Uh, I can't wait to see what, does next so there there are several uh new voices in film new visions in film this year that uh, I, I can't wait to see what else they do
0: hmm. I, and i and i don't want to you know there, there are several female directors who are getting you know greta gerwig for example is getting more and more um, oh man options yeah. for things she's going to do she's going to be bringing out little women which has a pretty yes. interesting cast <laughs> attached yes. to that so yeah um, i don't want to say i love
2: i loved ladybird yeah absolutely Um, Okay, let's move on. Number five. All right. When you get into the top five, uh, these are all from um, men who are filmmakers. Uh, That really has no bearing on the fact that I like them. Um, But it's a a good place to sort of transition our focus here because I think in the top five, four of them have to do with young people. Four of them have Mm. to do either with bringing uh, an audience of adults into a renewed appreciation for and hopefully restoration of childlike wonder and mm. faith, mm. Um, but also helping us think about the world we are we are giving to the next generation. What kind of world have we made for children? What kind of experience are children having? So mm. number five on my list is Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary you mentioned earlier about Fred Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He was a hero to me. Um, I wanted to be a puppeteer. I wanted to be a storyteller like him. I wanted to have my own TV show like him. <laughs> he he influenced me in many many ways. Have you and accomplished
0: so, any of those things yet? I mean, do, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe you could get a puppeteering TV show as well. <laughs>
2: Well, I'm on a podcast, so <laughs> I'll leave that to you to decide how close I came. But, um, but I do continue to write stories, and I do still love puppets. In fact, my writing desk at home in my writing office is a puppet stage that my grandfather built for me when I was mm-hmm. 10 years old. And That's I, fantastic. Since I don't do puppet shows anymore, I had my father sort of converted into a laptop desk so I can sit at the puppet stage and bring characters to life. Um, <laughs> and uh, a lot of that goes back to my love for Mr. Rogers and for Jim Henson. Um, So it'd be easy for me to say, of course I love this movie. It's very personal to me, and it is. But boy, I tell you, looking around in the theater at how many people were just openly weeping at this vision of a man who is so empathetic and imaginative and caring and conscientious. Uh, and really a living manifestation of the gospel in many, many ways. Um, I and this is a Presbyterian minister who chose to be a children's TV personality instead of to be a pastor and, uh, the influence he had on our generation, but also, um, on new generations. I, I thinking that this was probably something that I couldn't review fairly, I asked my students, undergraduates in college, uh, what they thought of it. And they cried too. They'd never Mm -hmm. seen the show, but this movie is so well-crafted that it gave them a profound encounter with Mr. Rogers Mm -hmm. and um, enables his ministry to go on. I I think ministry is the right word for it in a way that we desperately need right now. Uh, There was a sense in the audience watching Won't You Be My Neighbor that this is exactly the movie the world needs right now because it will remind us of those lessons we learned in childhood about loving your neighbor, uh, loving the stranger, loving uh, the person who isn't like you, and how that is at the core of whether there's any hope f- for the world. Um, so as you watch Fred Rogers, who seems so irrepressibly hopeful and optimistic and loving, as you watch his spirit broken by things that are happening in the world, uh, it. It, it ends up being a very unsettling experience in some ways. It could have just been a Valentine to Mr. Rogers, but it's, mm. it, it, it's a really unsettling psychological portrait of what is happening to the best of us in the world, mm. uh, in the world that we are creating in the world that, um, some of our, I mean, for lack of a better word, consumerist tendencies are, are shaping, um, A lot of people in their reviews are saying, you know, Fred Rogers would never succeed in the world today, would never have that kind of TV show in the world today, because we've lost an appreciation for paying attention. We've lost an appreciation for silence. We've lost an appreciation for intimacy. We want to be constantly, jarringly entertained, and Hmm. his kind of ministry would not uh, survive in this kind of world. And so... I think it's, it's not just a feel good movie. It's a profoundly challenging one. Hmm. I think,
0: I I think it was A.O. Scott who called it curiously melancholy or something like that. And I, I thought that was a really, a really, um, Good way of putting it. That I believe it is streaming streaming on Amazon Prime Video right now. I think, and if it's not, oh, you can rent it for a couple of dollars for people who haven't yeah. seen that one yet. Yeah, that's, yeah. I,
1: yeah.
2: If I could take the whole world to see one movie this year, that's the one I would take them to. Absolutely. I've
0: been side note related, but side note. I've been pleasantly surprised at the degree to which my my boys, they're six and seven, and then I've got a two year old as well. But how much they have loved mr rogers i wasn't sure you know because of the things that are available to them now and you know i I was hopeful you know we have we've been pretty careful about what we sort of curate for them but i've been pleasantly surprised at at how much they actually i think um well i think that his his temperament is appealing to young children Hmm. um and i think that that's true in 2018 as much as it was in the you know early 90s when i was growing up or you know in the 30s, when you were growing up, or whatever. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> yeah, way well, back
0: then. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. Number four.
2: Uh, so uh, closely connected. Uh, this is a movie called Eighth Grade, uh, written by the stand-up comedian Bo Burnham, who somehow, I don't know how, has a direct line uh, into the emotional experience of a middle school girl. And is able to bring to life what life is like now for middle schoolers or middle school girls, or at least this white middle class middle schooler, um, who is living and growing up in a world saturated by social media, where her social media environment is more real to her in many ways than her um, than her physical environment. And so Mm. we are watching, as she sort of keeps a video diary, we are drawn into the striking and unsettling dichotomies between the way she presents herself in her world and the way she sort of advises others on her YouTube channel and Mm. the the deeply alienating um, experiences she's having at school um, where she just cannot connect with people around her very well. On the other hand, it's also an inspiring picture of how the creative expression involved in presenting herself on social media ends up being a sort of therapy. She's obviously advising herself when she advises others on her Mm. YouTube channel. And Mm. so we can watch her sort of coaching herself for lack of having a good coach in her life. Um, Having said that, it would be very easy for this movie to have made her single parent father just a joke. Uh, but he also is a very loving, caring man who is just, who's trying, trying to figure out how to be a good father to this young woman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I loved it. I thought I completely believed in the world back to those two questions I ask of a movie. Do I believe it? I absolutely believed in 13 year old Kayla. I absolutely believed in her dad played by Josh Hamilton. And I remember a lot of these experiences from middle school, a lot of those, uh, insecurities and fears probably the the best scene in the movie involves kayla trying to muster the courage to go to a swimming pool party um and she doesn't want to go because she's worried about her body she's worried about swimsuits she's worried about being so exposed and vulnerable surrounded by all of these others who seem so confident and and so in control when of course they're not (laughs) right Um, and boy, that brought back nightmare flashbacks for me. <laughs> I, I had a similarly traumatic experience at one of those parties. So um, I, I think it's a fantastic movie for anybody just to remind us of the world that we're, we're giving young people mm. like this. Mm. But it's also, I think, inspiring for young people to watch and, and, and see the lessons that Kayla learns along the way the surprising influence of an older girl who sort of becomes a mentor to her uh, and becomes kind of a guardian angel to her. Very unlikely turn. I thought that was going to go very, very wrong in the movie, but it doesn't. Hmm. Um, And Bo Burnham, I mean, I don't, didn't really know him before, but uh, this stand-up comic has come out of nowhere to make one of the most fully realized um, memorable movies of the year for me. So Hmm. I highly recommend that. And that also now is available for rental on streaming platforms. Um, very worthwhile. Although if you're going to watch it with your, with your kids, be informed that there is a movie, that there is a movie, there is a moment in the movie where, uh, young Kayla in her attempts to impress a boy she likes, uh, digs a little too deep in the internet, so to speak, uh, figure out, figure out what boys want. And, Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably not a scene you want to watch with your kids.
0: Yeah. It might be. At best, awkward, I suppose. <laughs> at best. Okay, so top three movies. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I have a feeling I know at least one of these are based on things I've seen you say over the yeah. course of the year. But I'll, I, you know, I'll let you reveal them for me. So number three.
2: Number three is the odd one out here. Number three is not about kids at all. Number three is called The Favorite it was um, on my
0: list to ask you i gotta ask you about this one
2: yeah by yorgos lanthimos who yeah. has made some of the strangest most disturbing comedies of the last several years including the lobster yeah uh, i'd rather not try to explain or or describe those movies for you that would take hours <laughs> the yeah. favorite is a period piece set in the 18th century uh in the reign of queen anne played by the great olivia coleman who some of you will know from *Broadchurch*. um she's, she's just, going to be in the Crown*. Yes, well, which makes a whole lot of sense. Um, She is one of the great British actors, and she will have the status of a Judi Dench someday. Um, She plays Queen Anne, who is descending into madness, um, fractured with losses and regrets. The less I say about that, the better, because the way the movie reveals the nature of her losses is really one of its strong points. And it's about two women who are competing to be her right hand, or really to, to control her because she's just incapable of ruling. Her judgment is so lost and her understanding of what the nation needs is is profoundly insufficient. So here comes, uh, uh, well, there's a woman named Sarah who is sort of her attendant, played by Rachel Weitz, who is um, really running the country because she's able to influence Queen Anne so much and has found ways to win her favor. And then here comes Sarah's young cousin, Abigail, played by Emma Stone, and she is a rags-to-riches story who is going to compete with Sarah for the queen's love and attention, and thus the title, the favorite. Um, but this is a this is not Downton Abbey. This is a or the Crown. This is a nasty, uh, subversive, twisted picture of the corrupting nature of power. So while it sounds like a movie maybe I should be warning people about, well, that's fair. I <laughs> should warn you. It's, it's very dark and twisted. It's also very true, very truthful. It's a, it's a great movie uh, to have in theaters right now showing to big audiences because of the picture it gives us of the how easily people are duped into compromising and into pleasing um, shall we say, misguided leaders in order to gain influence and what that actually does to a person. And so the more we might end up rooting for one of these characters to win the queen's favor, by the end, we're realizing, well, what have we been rooting for? I mean, to win in this game is to find yourself in prison, not necessarily a literal prison, but a psychological prison. The more power Mm. you gain in this situation, the more alienated you become from the world and the more lonely you will become. Mm. So... It's a very sick and twisted game, um, but again, I think it's disturbing for a reason and for a good reason. It's purposeful. It's meaningful. It's, it's hilarious. And um, also, I think kind of a game changer in movies like this because the women do not exist to win men's favor. The mm-hmm. women have um, their own relationships that are stories unto themselves and the power games that are Um, power games unto themselves and the men are almost irrelevant in this movie so it would threaten and upset men who feel threatened when movies stop being primarily about them but in that sense i think it's therapeutic (laughs) and very very truthful so i'm a big fan of this movie uh the audience i saw it with uh loved it laughed up a storm all the way to the end but again it's very r-rated because it's very truthful about very shall we say, troubling things.
0: Mm. This is a movie that I have been looking forward to since I heard about it because The Lobster was one of my favorite movie theater experiences <laughs> I've seen in a long time. I had to, yeah. I drove with a friend of mine um, and my brother to... We drove pretty far. We kind of made a, a day, but we had lunch somewhere. And I'm not really sure why we wanted to see it so much, but we did. And we went to a matinee. And then I remember we had some very different responses to it. It just made for a very a very sort of fun movie going experience. You know what you, what you want movies to be like, where it just generates so much conversation and you sit there half the time wondering what's going on. And uh, at least that's what I, um, that's one of the things I enjoy about movies that are as, as uh, creative in the best way. I don't mean uh, that's sort of a productive word to use, but it's, it's his movies are so creative and so strange in the best ways that I can't wait to see this one. It's finally, it's finally here in town this week. So I got to, steal some time away to, to go see that one the trailer i was i've watched the trailer probably 20 times just because i like the trailer in and of itself so can't wait for that one
2: you know it, it, he he takes these wild risks with his storytelling i mean the lobster he asks you to believe that if you don't follow society's rules that the government will turn you into an animal <laughs> you know, i mean that's ridiculous but if you if you will if you can accept that presence or that that premise, <laughs> yeah. Then what that comes to represent, or what that comes to say about society, is actually quite truthful, and reminds me of yeah. what Nathaniel Hawthorne said about uh, that the you know the real measure of a work of art is in its suggestiveness.
1: Mm.
2: And uh, Lanthimos's films uh, take these wild risks in order to challenge us with metaphors, and if we accept the metaphor, we'll see that as far fetched as this movie is. And the favorite is not based on a lot of real history. There's a lot of make-believe going on here. But if we accept these crazy premises, we end up with things that can't be said, truths that can't be said any other way. Hmm. So I'm grateful for him.
0: (laughs) Quickly, would you consider it kind of a subversion of the typical, I don't know, chamber piece that... Oh, yeah, definitely.
2: Definitely. Yeah, um, it, it, it takes a lot of those conventions... Uh, like, you know, okay, so who, which man on the court are you, is this one, does this woman need to charm in order to win her way? And, and just completely turns that upside down. Um, mm. It's very, very funny.
0: Mm. Well, like I said, I, I, I'm, I'm going to have
2: to figure out how to see this before Christmas. Um,
0: okay. Number it's also, two. I,
2: think the best, I think it's the best Emma Stone performance we've had yet. Um, mm. You know, she won an Oscar for La La Land and I, I kind of cringed because I had a feeling, that the great Emma Stone performance was probably just around the corner. And here it is.
0: <laughs> she, um, she was scheduled to be in the Greta Gerwig little women, but then I saw that she's out because of promoting their filming while they had to promote the favorite. So oh, that, wow. that would have been, I would have really enjoyed seeing her in a movie directed by Greta Gerwig, but well, I think
2: we pro- like it'll probably happen with some other movie then. Yeah. 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 All right. Number two, Well, now we're back, uh, back in kindergarten, so to speak. Um, (laughs) Paddington two may be be the best sequel I've seen since toy story two. It's like toy story two, uh, embraces everything that went well with the first Paddington movie. Uh, and believe me, if you're hearing this and, and scratching your head and wondering what in the world I'm talking about, (laughs) you need to see Paddington because Paddington, like the best Pixar movies, um, has all the stuff that it needs to be a great children's movie, but is speaking profoundly to adults. Mm -hmm. And it also unleashes such extraordinary visual imagination, such perfect voice casting. Yeah. Ben Wishaw is incredible. He, yeah, I don't know that I can think of a better voice match for a character than Ben Wishaw and Paddington. Um, uh, Sally Hawkins, who, who, uh, you know, was in (laughs) the The shape of water. I thought she was even better in the Paddington movies. Um, Hugh Bonneville Paddington, from yeah, Hugh, Hugh Bonneville Down, from um, Down Abbey and just such a great cast. Paddington Two is a much bigger and frankly better movie, and it's about uh, how our communities are stronger if we welcome the stranger. So it's a very very timely movie about England and immigration right now. Um, it's about a bear who loves marmalade sandwiches, but it's about Uh, problems with uh, prisons and incarceration and unfair um, police practices. And I mean, it's hard to believe all these things fit together so well. A lot of people have acknowledged that if you didn't see the director's name on this film, it's directed by Paul King, who also directed the first Paddington movie, you might end up concluding that it's a Wes Anderson movie. Hmm. Because uh, visually, it's so in love with symmetry and color and a sort of uh, um, diorama like pageantry. Uh, and I think that's a really good comparison. Um, It also gets great, great work from all of its actors. And the real standout here, believe it or not, is Hugh Grant, who I think has the best role and best performance of his career as the villain in Paddington 2, believe it or not. So um, the less I say about that, the better, because this movie is full of surprises. Um, It's so funny. It's so warm-hearted. It gets great performances from Brendan Gleeson as well. Um, Noah Taylor, who... There, there's not enough Noah Taylor in the movies. Um, yeah, I, I've seen it three times now. I just uh, bought a copy for the home library because I know I'll keep going back to it. And mm-hmm. as somebody who like, likes to write stories for children, um, I just hold this up as sort of a gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would have been my movie of the year until last week. So, <laughs> Which brings us to your movie, well, your
0: number one movie of the year. So it's a recent yeah.
2: I can't believe I'm saying this, and maybe in a year I will look back and go, what was I thinking? Because I typically don't like superhero movies. I I think they justify a lot of things that, I, that trouble me. I think they're frustratingly formulaic, um, and I just think they've kind of taken over movies, and I'm just so very tired of Marvel movies. There are very few of them that have made much of an impression on me at all but I saw Spider-Man into the (laughs) Spider-Verse. I can't, I have to laugh at myself just to say it out loud last week. It's a great title. And I, I have not had more fun at a movie since I was a kid. I, there is so much note, perfect humor, so many strong characters and above all, just, extravagant visual imagination in this movie um, that I, I'm just fumbling for other animated movies to compare to it. It has a huge cast of characters because the whole premise is that there are many different universes and there's a Spider-Man in all of them. And what if all of those Spider-Men ended up in the same place at the same time, trying to um, fight the same criminal, this, this gigantic villain called Kingpin, who is breaking down the walls between these universes? What if they all had to get together and accept the fact that there are other Spider-Man in the universe, and then work together, um, fitting their differences together in order to achieve something? So it's a coming-of-age story about a, a young Afro-Latino boy named Miles Morales, who is the son of a cop, uh, so there's all kinds of uh, issues on the table already there in New York, which is overrun with consumerism and and just capitalism run amok, trying to find his way in the world and discovers that he's been bitten by the same kind of spider that that made the first Spider-Man. So he ends up meeting Peter Parker, and they have to sort of negotiate, okay, how are we going to do this now that there's two of us? And then there are three and four and five and six. And where it really gets creative is that these other Spider-Men are not just coming from other alternate universes. They're coming from other genres. So one of the Spider-Man, believe it or not, is, is like Porky Pig from a Looney Tunes version of Spider-Man, uh, who actually says that's all folks at one point in the movie. Um, there's a Spider-Woman. There's a Noir Spider-Man. <laughs> and um, as these different genres collide the visual styles associated with those different comics collide. Mm. And somehow I'm still trying to figure out how they did it. The filmmakers keep us anchored, keep us focused on miles Morales and his coming of age story in the middle of all of these mishmash styles on the screen. I cared about these characters. I was exhilarated by the, the music in this movie, which also comes from all kinds of genres I didn't want to blink because there were so many wonderful things happening on the screen at once. And contrary to Roma and some of these other movies we've talked about, the technical achievement of the thing did not distract me from the heart of the movie. Um, And I think it's about very, very important things all the way through. So I went and saw it a second time yesterday on a big IMAX screen and this time I took a notebook with me and I sat there and I filled seven pages with notes. Just trying to keep up with little details that I was noticing the second time Mm. that contribute meaningfully to the heart of the movie. And I can tell you from experience that I'm going to find more the third time, and I'm going to find more the fourth time. This is a a sense that I've developed over many, many years that once in a while you just get that sense that this is one of those movies that's going to keep on rewarding us every time we go. these other movies I've been talking about, which I really loved and really admired, uh, none of them gave me that sense of, I can't wait to see this as many times as possible in a theater with an audience on the biggest Mm -hmm. possible screen, um, because it takes me back to why I fell in love with movies in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, I have that thrill that I felt seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time. Mm -hmm. I have that sense that this is a movie that's going to continue to inspire me to make my own stuff for years to come because it has reminded me that, you know, as saturated as we are with movies and television and imagery, um, there are still wonderful new ways to tell stories in meaningful ways. I think a lot of kids are going to be profoundly influenced by this film because of what it's saying to them and the, mm-hmm. what it's showing them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah, believe it or not, uh, a movie that I was cynical about when I first saw the, the trailer is the one that I hope to see several more times in the theater before it's gone. So Mm. it's a big commercial movie. It's got Sony stamped all over it. There's Sony products all over this thing. Um, but somehow they gave this project to just the right people who love comic books, who love Spider-Man so much and who really get what those stories can mean to people. Mm. And allowed them the freedom to develop this vision over time so that it is worth digging into. Mm. So that's it. That's, that's my movie of the year. And I doubt that anything is going to, uh, to take its place.
0: <laughs> but but that is a, uh, that is a, you know, good holiday season family movie.
2: Yes. Yes. I think so. Um, uh, in fact, uh, where most Spider-Man movies are about Spider-Man's, you know, the, the the uncle who was sort of a father figure to him
1: being killed and how that shapes his story. This storylines, uh, it doesn't rely
2: on that mythology for its meaning. It, it turns things in really new ways. Mm. And um, I think uh, pop culture savvy viewers are going to enjoy all the little references along the way there is a poster on miles Morales's wall of chance, the rapper hmm. and uh, chances face smiling down uh, on him it's sort of, it's almost like a little guardian angel in the movie. And if you know who chance, the rapper is and you know what he represents, then that becomes a really wonderful accent. So to speak on in the
0: movie. Hmm. Um, well, I, before I let you go, we probably should wrap this up here. We've gone a while. I want to ask you about a couple movies that you didn't mention that I've gotten, I've had some, conversations about people with and that a couple of people have yeah. asked me about there's three in particular that i'm curious i think it's three that, that you haven't mentioned that i'm curious about one is a quiet place which came out much earlier in the year john kris yes. a horror film with emily blunt uh, his wife she stars in it um and i'm curious what's your take on that one
2: you know i i've been baffled this year because my my students my undergraduate students are um they don't go to the movies very often they go see marvel movies Um, you know, they were really into Harry Potter, but now they mostly binge watch things on, on YouTube or or Netflix. They're more into television. They're more into series. Mm -hmm. Uh, They rarely go to the movies. I don't know what it was, but for some reason, a lot of them got up and went to the movies on opening weekend for a quiet place. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're all big John Krasinski fans. I don't know if there, I mean, there's a horror movie every week, it seems like, and they don't go see all of those. So I'm kind of stumped as to why that film connected with them so much. I admired it. It's got mm-hmm. a, great, a great performance by Emily Blunt. She might even get a nomination for that. Um, it has a if rare portrait. Right, right. Yeah, she's had a big year. Yeah. Um, well, and so has John Krasinski, who, who, plays, who plays her husband in this, who is her husband in real life, and who directed the movie. Um, he's having a big year too, playing Jack Ryan on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course the, the big draw in this movie is the fact that you have to be quiet or the monsters will come. And so the movie uses silence really, really effectively. And so in that sense, I can see how word of mouth made this movie a big deal because you can only really have that experience in a theater. Mm -hmm. You can only really appreciate that when you realize you are in a room with hundreds of other people and you are all, holding your breath so that you, so that you can hear a pin drop because if a pin drops, it could change the whole story. Mm. Um, So as far as that goes, it has a great gimmick (laughs) and it uses it very, very effectively. And it's a very family focused story as horror movies go. It's, it's surprisingly low on gore. Um, And yeah, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the scares really work. Um, I can't say it was an important one for me mm-hmm. because I've seen a lot of horror movies that use silence very effectively, mm-hmm. but they aren't necessarily movies that a lot of audience have se- audiences have seen and they certainly aren't movies that young people are, are familiar with. Yeah. So it's a well-crafted genre piece, um, but I don't. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure the problem is me, but I, I'm not getting why it's such a big deal. Yeah, uh, there will be a sequel, though, so we'll see if it holds up uh, as a franchise.
0: Yeah, that'll be interesting. I heard an interview with John Krasinski, and he was saying that it's not really about the same people so much as it is the same world, which is an interesting, maybe less common concept for for properties that make as much money as A Quiet Place did. So that it'd be interesting to see if he's committed to that or if they kind of. Slip into old habits, so to speak, I mean not that the old habits didn't work, but it'll certainly keep the sequel from being as inventive as it could be if they just returned to the well
2: you know if i if I were were to keep digging uh, about what what the what's meaningful about this movie, it may be that by by embracing that gimmick, they require their main characters to pay closer attention to each other than they would in any other circumstance, mm-hmm. and in that sense, these characters have intimate relationships in a way that we're not used to seeing. Hmm. Uh, And maybe, maybe this speaks to sort of like we were saying about some of these other movies. Maybe this speaks to our, our deepening sense that we are losing a vital sense of intimacy in human relationships. Hmm. And these, these parents and children have to give each other their full attention because their lives depend on it. Um, Maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. Hmm.
0: Well, another movie that uses, silence or well sometimes a lack thereof sort of uniquely is damien chazelle's first man the ryan gosling movie that was one that i think maybe it didn't live up to some of the hype and kind of faded away more quickly than people expected it to although we'll see what happens when academy award nominations come out both for ryan gosling and damien chazelle but did you see first man and what was what did you think of that one
2: yeah i did see it um i admired it very much um Damien Chazelle's movies, I, I, I think the, the best way I know to, to appreciate this film is to see it as a Damien Chazelle movie. Mm-hmm. And Damien Chazelle has made movies about people who, in their ambitions, end up compromising human relationships, especially family, to a damaging degree. Mm-hmm. So, Whiplash is about a young man who wants to be a great drummer and makes kind of a Faustian bargain with a demanding. Uh, uh, drum teacher, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, music teacher, who, mm-hmm. um, who really uh, seduces him to pursue excellence to the degree that he uh, damages his, his relationships with his family. In La La Land, uh, as inspiring and playful and upbeat as that movie is, at its heart it's a story about how the call to stardom Um, ends up costing true love in a way. And some people will argue and say, well, in this case, it was justified. I mean, if they settled for each other, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just thinking, you had true love there. And um, now you're going to live always wondering, you know, what what if I'd stuck with it? In First Man, it's the story of Neil Armstrong. And so there's a lot of speculation and fictionalizing going on as we try to understand what motivates him to get to the moon? Is it that he's profoundly moved by a sense of wonder, uh, as he says in the movie when he's put on the spot? Or is it that his colleagues are dying right and left because of NASA's failed experiments, and he wants to make those deaths mean something by getting there and finishing the job himself? Hmm. Or is it about losing... His daughter, um, early in the film, we see Neil Armstrong and his wife lose a child and he seems profoundly, um, wounded by that loss and perhaps driven to overcome the laws of physics in a way, or to, to get beyond the human sphere. Um, why to reconnect with her in some way to, um, um, honor her in some way the movie leaves a lot of these questions sort of hanging Mm. and i'm not sure it all works for me but it was a a very affecting experience and by the end i what what i was most interested in was what what has happened now to this family um as he has made it to the moon i mean spoiler (laughs) (laughs) he he makes it to the moon what does that do to these boys who have practically lost their father to his faithful and loving wife who has had to make unreasonable um um, sacrifices and challenges for him to complete this mission and uh i think the final image of the film is a is a big question about that about so what now what what has this been worth has this been worth it Mm -hmm. um have has the marriage been lost or are they alienated from each other or are they going to find their way back um Mm -hmm. I'm interested in discussing that with anybody who's seen the movie because I'm I'm not entirely sure. Mm. But um, yeah, it's definitely worth seeing. Ryan Gosling is very good. Claire Foy is even better. Um, and the recreations of the moon landing mission are disorienting to say the least. Where a lot of them are very... I was talking with somebody about this earlier this morning where a lot of space movies are about the grace of spaceships moving through space to classical music. This is about <laughs> that feeling that you're inside... Uh, inside a washing machine out of control uh being blasted out beyond the reach of gravity and uh, it was hard to watch in that sense
1: hmm.
0: um one more that i want to ask you about that is also about marriage actually and it is a much smaller movie and that's paul dano's wildlife which is based on a richard ford novel that stars carrie mulligan and jake gyllenhaal have you seen that one
2: not yet. That's on my list of the the ones that got away right now. I do need yeah, to catch up with see. that, but as a, as a Cary Mulligan fan, I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, but I, yeah, I've read some very promising things about that one. What did you think?
0: Well, I haven't seen it. That's one, oh, okay, that's one okay. of the ones that I'm, I mean, that's, that's the classic example of a movie that I'm probably gonna have to wait to see because it's probably never going to come near me <laughs> or yeah. I'm going to have to drive, but I, I too, I am a huge Cary Mulligan fan. I'll see movies that are otherwise very mediocre just because Carrie Mulligan's in them. So, um, yeah I, yeah, I, I would see it no matter what, but the, I, I actually read, I, I, I like Richard Ford. So I'm curious to see how they, you know, how they approach his work and, you know, that's quite a cast. Jake Gyllenhaal's in there and the two of them yeah, together should yeah. Pretty electric on the on the screen, in ways. That and we've gotten
2: this we've gotten this far without without even mentioning Isle of Dogs, which was uh, one of the most creative uh, works of animation and and handmade art that that I've seen in a long time. We haven't you know, talked Russ about the Anderson movie. Yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the new Coen Brothers movie, which we could spend a whole show talking about that.
0: Yeah, um, I was going to propose yeah. that actually because that's a,
2: <laughs> I, I guess
0: that could. <laughs> I would love to. I actually really do want to discuss that because I want to discuss the whether some of those would be suited better suited as as t, as, yeah, as a it would have been better suited as a mm. series, and if some of them should have been expanded to be more lo- to be longer, and uh, which ones work and which ones don't. Um, I think they work to varying degrees. So that yeah, that we could spend an hour just on that on that
2: movie. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think it's a great Coen Brothers movie. It's I agree with a lot of the critics who have said that um, perhaps it's the best. Way to introduce people to the Cohen's work because each of those short stories sort of represents a different tone or a different style that they have done yeah. full movies in before. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: um, it really is a collection of very different short stories done in very different styles. Uh, it's strange and how it embraces traditional western storytelling any one of these stories could have come from an anthology of early western stories but each one has that unique coen brothers twist where they're making you question things that we used to embrace <laughs> yeah, um,
1: yeah.
2: Um, the most valuable thing to come out of that movie for me has been a debate i've been sort of witnessing and just listening to about the portrayal of native americans in the movie mm-hmm. um, they're not in it very much at all but when they yeah. are It's the kind of role that uh, Native Americans have played in Western storytelling that was very demeaning and narrow and stereotyping. And the Coens don't really do much to challenge that in this. And it's got a lot of people pretty worked up and upset. And I'm sympathetic to those arguments. At the same time, I don't think they set out to make a movie to challenge us about um, our about cultural stereotypes of native americans i think they set out to make a movie that challenges us to think about the sort of manifest destiny attitude of western storytelling so it ends up challenging the sort of uh toxic masculinity at the heart of a lot of western iconography um yeah
0: and i think in that way the most the the most important or the most thematically um the, the 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 short film in it that drives the, the, the story thematically is the one with Tom Waits where he's yes. the gold miner. I can't remember off the top of my head what it's called prospector, now, but yeah. prospector. Yeah. I think that one is one of the most beautiful things they've ever done. I mean, it's shot. It's incredibly well shot, but Tom Waits' his performance is spot on. It's a great reminder that Tom Waits is actually a great actor. Um, and I think that that's the one that gets it, that, that, that is the gets the most at a critique of that manifest destiny thing, that idea of going West, you know, a lot of times when you hear, well, you know, that's an interesting one to compare to the sisters brothers, actually. Um, yeah, very much, very similar themes. Yeah. You're going, they're going after something that seem that's going to, you know, make them something, better than what they currently are. It's like that by going West, there's some, there's some garden of Eden out there, some promised land that's got something for you. That's going to transform you magically into something better, more successful. That's going to change your life. Um, but that oftentimes the promise of that leads you to being a very old man who wanders around the mountains by yourself, (laughs) pursued by people who want to take everything you have. Um, that's way more common than someone becoming very successful and, you know, becoming the, the big bad in Deadwood.
2: (laughs) There's yeah I mean it'd be easy to spoil this one so I won't but if you if you watch that particular short listen to the line that gets repeated over and over and over again in the dialogue before it's over, and then think about that line and what it says about the character who's saying it. Um, it's it's a movie that could very narrowly be interpreted as a movie about uh, you know a gold miner who 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 is victorious, but instead uh, I think it's a movie that profoundly questions both of its human characters and look at the way the natural world responds to human engagement, uh, Mm. in that short story. And Mm. I think that's where the real story is.
1: Mm.
0: That one, for whatever reason, I mean, I guess it's because it has Tom Waits, but even the way that it was told reminded me of down by law for some reason. And I haven't been able to put my (laughs) fingers on why exactly. I mean, it wouldn't, I don't mean I often see some, um, some similarities between Jarmusch and the Cohen brothers. But yeah, I, yeah, I, as sure. I was watching that, that particular short, I, I know the Tom Waits part of it probably plays into this, but there was something else in there that I kept, kept reminding me of down by law. Uh, I, I mean, I love down by law. So I think about it all the time. So that probably maybe not a fair comment to make, but but there was something about it. And I haven't been able to identify what that is yet. So that's something well, would, Tom
2: Waits often, Tom Waits is very good at playing characters that talk to themselves true. and that um, sort of live half in their heads. Uh, true. and, and his character in down by law is a DJ without a, without a show. And mm. so he's constantly narrating, um, uh, the, some kind of radio program that he's not really doing. And here he's, he's narrating his experience. He's talking to the mountain. He's challenging the ground to give up its gold. Mm. Um, it's uh yeah i can see some some correlation there
0: well as you said you never know what an individual person is going to take away from an experience with a movie and that's why these conversations and these lists are so fun to to discuss thank you so much for bringing uh your list and i love that you said that um one of the things you look out for is the movies that surprise you. And then in the yeah. end, your top two were Paddington 2 and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which you both, you kept, I think the word you used them several times in discussing both those movies was how surprised you were at various yeah.
2: elements of it. So comes full circle as far as that goes. And I haven't even mentioned the movie that meant the most to my students this year, and that was Black Panther. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we, yeah. you know, there's, yeah. there's still, we've just scratched the surface here, but I hope that some of these lesser known films will lead people to some... Some meaningful discoveries. They've certainly become meaningful to me. Hmm.
0: Well, that's the beautiful thing about a great year in movies, and about movies in general, yeah. is we can spend almost two hours talking about something and barely <laughs> scratch the surface.
2: <laughs> so, thank yeah. you
0: for uh, taking some time this afternoon uh, to talk about these movies with me. I really appreciate well, it.
2: Thank you for setting aside s- substantial time to talk about them, because uh, I mean, a lot of you know, similar programs will last about fifteen minutes and uh, won- won- won't really get to the good stuff. So, I feel like we could keep going if we wanted to. Thank you.
0: Well, that was Jeffrey Overstreet. Uh, thanks to Jeffrey for joining me. I really enjoyed that. If you're still with us, thank you for listening. We we really enjoyed doing a deep dive and, and getting a chance to talk about so many different movies. I hope that there were some things that you're interested in checking out. If you would like to find more of Jeffrey's reviews and more of his recommendations, remember you can head over to lookingcloser.org. And if you are a tweeter, you can find him over at Overstweet. <laughs> so O-V-E-R-S-T-W-E-E-T, Overstweet. So thanks to Jeff for joining me, and uh, thanks to everyone who listened this week. Uh, the, the early response on the podcast has been great, and I thank you for that. I thank you for your reviews and your comments and the kind words that everyone has been offering to me. Um, it's it's great to be here with you, to be chatting with you about books, okay, or or on occasion, you know, cheat and talk about movies. Uh, but but, this is going to be fun i'm really excited next week we're going to have an episode talking about um, why one very particular book was recently nominated or voted in a poll as the most popular book uh, in in american in America so we're going to talk about that next week and then after that we've got an episode with some working writers about their process that I'm really excited about. So lots of great content coming up. Make sure you have subscribed. Make sure that you have uh, left starred reviews if, if you're up for it, or a written review is even, is even better. So thank you for participating and being a part of this show. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to everybody. 2019, uh, it looks like it's going to be a great year here in the Close Reads Podcast Network, and we are so excited for the, uh, all the great content we're bringing you. I hope you are as well. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Close Reads Podcasts, and on Twitter at Close Reads Pod.
1: And with that, we'll talk to you in 2019. Thank you for listening.